To be honest, even as recently as Friday, I wasn't much looking forward to preaching this text. Uh, I hate to admit it, but the account of Jesus calming the storm has left something of a bad taste in my mouth. It has nothing to do with the text itself or with the event which this passage describes. Rather, it is the way in which this passage has so often been handled within the church. This passage, along with others like it, like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. These types of verses have become cornerstones of what I call devotion book Christianity. That's that form of Christianity that can be found in, in Christian bookstore devotion books and on cheap wall art that rips these verses out of their context and turns them into pious platitudes that are hollow and thin and do not make sense of the depth and complexity either of the Bible or of real life. Philippians 4.13, for instance, does not mean that Jesus is going to help you do whatever it is you set your mind to. Whether it means winning SEC football games or getting that job promotion. In context, Paul means that Christ gives him the strength to suffer hardship and deprivation and not lose his faith. Jeremiah 29.11 does not mean that God's plan for your life includes material prosperity. It does not mean that it includes a good job, a wife and two and a half kids, a picket fence, and a growing 401k. Those words occur in the midst of a letter that Jeremiah sent to Jewish exiles living as slaves in Babylon, a people who were under God's judgment because of their idolatry and their sin, a people enslaved to a foreign power who had seen everything in their homeland trampled, destroyed, and burned by fire. And he comes to them and he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare, Plans for your good and not for your evil. What he's saying is, judgment will not be the last word for the people of God. Likewise, Mark 4, 35-41 does not mean that Jesus will step in to calm your every storm. It does not mean that Jesus will speak Peace, be still over your adverse circumstances, your rough and stormy marriage, your rough and stormy job, your rough and stormy health, and all of those things will instantly go away. That's not the way this text should be applied. The point of this narrative is not that the storm should not have happened or that it was not God's will for the disciples, but rather that the disciples should not have been afraid. That's the point of this storm. Jesus is not disturbed by the storm. He's disturbed by his disciples' lack of faith. The church needs a biblical theology of suffering. We need a theology that will help us to make real sense out of real pain. We need a theology that will equip us to endure the storms in faith with joy 
and in perseverance. And unfortunately, such a theology is largely missing from the American church and has been for generations. And you will become keenly aware of that fact when you try to comfort someone who is in the midst of difficult circumstances. The combination of a strong economy and a weak theology has resulted in a church that has grown accustomed to prosperity and comfort and security and is ill-equipped to endure poverty, pain, and uncertainty. This is evident any time disaster strikes, whether it be a hurricane, a tornado, a terrorist attack, a stock market crash, or on a more personal level, a tragic loss or a sudden and severe illness. See, when safety, security, comfort, or prosperity are ripped out of our hands, things that we have grown accustomed to and think we are entitled to, our faith is shaken and the question soon emerges from our lips, where is God? Kind of like the disciples. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? As if the presence of suffering implied the absence or the indifference of God. Revealing that to some extent at least our faith is grounded in our circumstances rather than in the word and the promises of God. And this is not a new problem. It's been around ever since the inception of the church for instance, the church in Thessalonica needed the same reminder. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul's words echo the point of this message. Writing about four to six months after he had left Thessalonica, he says this, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to encourage and establish and exhort you in your faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions. Look at the next line very, very carefully. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For what? For affliction. First Baptist Nixa, you are destined for affliction. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. You are destined for affliction. God has destined his people for suffering. He has destined his people for storms. And if we understand Paul's words in verses 4 and 5 rightly, if we are moved by these afflictions, our faith would be in vain. Why? Why has God destined his people for affliction? Why has he not destined his people for prosperity? Why has he destined his people for suffering? Why has he not destined his people for health? Why are tribulations central to New Testament Christianity? Those are some of the questions I want to address from Mark chapter 4 
and this story of the calming of the storm. Mark 4.35 picks up where 4.1 left off. You will remember that Jesus has been teaching the multitudes beside the Sea of Galilee, likely in an area that is known as the Bay of the Parables. It's a natural amphitheater outside of Capernaum on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's a place where the land slopes up rapidly from the shore and creates a sort of natural amphitheater that can transmit a human voice, according to one commentator, effortlessly to several thousand people. The crowd had grown so large that Jesus had gotten into a boat, he'd pushed off a little ways from the land, and he had taught the people from there. And after teaching the people with many parables, Jesus decided it was time to leave, and that's where we pick up in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Have you no faith? Why are you so afraid? The residents of Galilee would be immediately familiar with the kind of storm that Mark describes. They happen frequently. The Sea of Galilee lies 700 feet below sea level in a basin surrounded by hills and mountains which are particularly steep on the eastern side of the lake. Now just 30 miles to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee sits Mount Hermon which has a summit of 9,000 200 feet above sea level. So there is a 10,000 foot difference over the course of 30 miles from the top of Mount Hermon to the top of the Sea of Galilee. And so when the cold air streams down from Mount Hermon and it meets the warm air rising from the Sea of Galilee and the wind is, is swirled through the ravines and the, and the canyons along the way and into the basin, it forms a wind tunnel. And it creates uniquely intense, localized thunderstorms. That's why Mark calls it a furious thunderstorm. Literally a great storm of wind. And he reports that the wind was whipping the waves so that they were breaking over the side of the boat and they were filling it with water. So if you want to get a sense of the ferocity of this particular storm... Remember that all of these disciples, or many of them, are seasoned fishermen and they've spent their entire lives on this lake. They are quite familiar with the unpredictable and turbulent weather patterns and they know how to navigate a boat through storms and yet they're terrified. In 1986, the hull of a fishing boat was dug out of the mud on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, roughly five miles from Capernaum, which is the setting for most of the early chapters of Mark. 
Carbon-14 dating estimates the boat originates from somewhere between 120 B.C. and 40 A.D. In other words, during the time of Christ. The boat was 26 and a half feet long, 7 and a half feet wide, and 4 and a half feet high. Both the fore and the aft sections were covered by a deck, and in the middle, four rowers sat in the hole and propelled the boat with oars. The boat's total capacity was about 15 people, and the boat corresponds to similar vessels depicted in first century Galilean art, making it probable that this type of boat was the very type of boat on which Jesus and his disciples crossed the lake. And according to verse 38, Jesus was lying on the deck. He was asleep on a cushion in the stern, or the rear, section of the boat. One other note of interest before we start to make application uh, comes from the word translated rebuked in verse 39. And Jesus awoke and he rebuked the wind. That's a strange word. The word is used elsewhere in Mark's gospel with reference to exorcism, as in when Jesus rebukes unclean or evil spirits. Then Jesus commands the wind to peace, be still, which literally translates silence, be muzzled. And it occurs in the second person singular, like he's talking to an individual and not to a meteorological phenomenon. In other words, it's possible that Mark intends for us to see something more sinister behind this storm than mere atmospheric instability. This may be another encounter with Satan and the forces of evil, which is interesting because so may your storms be. They may be your storms, the storms in your health, the storms in your marriage, the storms in your own spiritual life, the storms in your job. They may be fiery darts of the enemy aimed for the destruction of your faith. But in the end, it matters not where the storm comes from, whether it's of natural or supernatural origins, because Jesus' absolute sovereign authority over it remains the same, and so does his call for faith in the midst of it. Now, I established several weeks ago that the gospel writers had theological, pastoral, and evangelistic reasons for including the particular events which they did in their gospel narratives. In other words, they had neither the time nor the space nor the inclination to write a comprehensive life of Christ that that details everything Jesus said and everywhere Jesus went and everything Jesus did. Every one of them made editorial decisions about which miracles to include and which to leave out, which parables to include and which to leave out, and their choice to include means that 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 parable, that miracle, serves a particular purpose for that author. Now, in our introductory sermon to Mark's gospel, I told you that Mark wrote his gospel for the church at Rome. Do you remember the setting that was facing the church at Rome at the time when Mark wrote? They were in the midst of the Neronian persecution. Members of their church are being covered in pitch and set up on stakes and lit on fire to light Nero's gardens. Members of their church are being fed to lions in the Roman Circus Maximus. 
In other words, Mark is writing to a group of people who are going through storms. They're going through persecution. They're suffering. And he has written his gospel to convince them that Jesus is Lord of the storm. That he is the Son of God. That he is worth trusting, worth following, worth suffering for, worth dying for. In other words, Mark's gospel and everything in it was written to help a persecuted church persevere in faith. And so if you are suffering through a storm, a storm in your finances, a storm in your family, a storm in your marriage, a storm in your job, a storm in your spiritual life, a storm in your body, if you are enduring a storm Mark's gospel is uniquely suited to strengthen your faith in Jesus. And this story is uniquely suited to strengthen your faith in Christ. In other words, the calming of the storm is not a mere display of Jesus' power over the elements of nature. That's not what this story is about. It's about tribulation and perseverance and the nature of true saving faith that is not afraid of storms. And so I think that we can pull from this passage four truths about the proverbial storms of life that I think are far more helpful than any you'll find in a devotional book. Truth number one. This passage reveals to us the reality of tribulation. So let's be clear. For everyone who would be a follower of Christ, whether you're baptized today or 70 years ago, let us be clear. There will be storms, they will hurt, and you might die. Is that clear enough? There will be storms, they will hurt, and you might die. Now, there is a pervasive notion out there in the broader evangelical church, sometimes unspoken, sometimes explicitly taught, that following Jesus will make your life easier, that it will be smooth sailing over calm waters for all those who have Jesus as the captain of their ship. Therefore, if you happen to encounter rough waters and storms and, and high winds, it must be some fault of your own. It must be because you've tried to retake the wheel. It must be the result of some sin in your life. Well, that's stupid. Tell that to Job, who suffered because he was righteous. Job 1.8. Tell that to these disciples who are in the middle of a life-threatening situation because Jesus told them to get in a boat and row out to the middle of the sea. Tell that to a number of members in this church who have suffered tribulation and heartache with no apparent fault of their own. It is a cruel and pernicious doctrine which says that whenever trouble arises, it must be your fault. And it is thoroughly unbiblical. That is not the way the scriptures typically speak of tribulation in the life of believers. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Because you're laboring under the burden of feeling 
that it's all your fault that life has gotten so rough. Listen closely. It is sometimes true that we sail off course into storms of our own making, but it is also true, and these two are not mutually exclusive, it is also true that Jesus steers us into storms in accordance with his good and sovereign purpose, which is to strengthen and to sanctify our faith. Now, I already pointed you to Paul's statement to the Thessalonian church to the effect that we, you, are destined for affliction. Let me give you three further passages to establish this truth, that storms are promised not as the result of sin, but for the purpose of our sanctification. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. When it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's not strange when you go through fiery trials. On the contrary, you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And yes, that applies to cancer and job loss and marital strife just as much as it does to persecution. Why? Because all sufferings, whether it be physical, spiritual, relational, emotional, all sufferings come with the temptation to give in to fear over faith. Every one of them. Far more people have abandoned Christ before the storm of cancer than before the storm of persecution. They've determined that God has wronged me in some way and he's no longer worth following. All suffering comes with the opportunity, therefore, to display to yourself and to the world, that Christ is more satisfying than comfort and that Jesus is better than life. Therefore, all suffering, no matter the source, is a suffering with Christ and for Christ. I wonder if that changes the way you view your present suffering. You are suffering with Christ and for Christ. Insofar as your suffering is an opportunity to faith rather than fear. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. God granted from all eternity that you would believe on Christ. Amen? And, and he purposed from all eternity that you would suffer with Christ. Amen? Goes both ways. Suffering and discipleship, in other words, are inseparably linked by the design of God. You will rarely, if ever, find one without the other. Romans 5, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame 
because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering is the means, says Paul, which God chooses to produce in us a character that results in hope. And therefore, suffering is a cause for rejoicing. Your present suffering is a cause for rejoicing because God is going to use that suffering to mold and shape your character to bring you into greater and greater depths of joy that cannot be shattered by any circumstances. So let's establish it in our mind and in our hearts that storms are not strange, nor are they the direct result of sin. Rather, they are the normal course of Christian discipleship, and they are the means by which God strengthens and sanctifies his people. And furthermore, you cannot use this passage as a promise that Jesus will swoop in to calm your storm and rescue you from death. You may die from cancer, or poverty, or starvation, or persecution. Now, that is what he did in this instance. He calmed the storm. He rescued his disciples from drowning. But what about when Peter was hung upside down on a cross about 30 years later? Why didn't Jesus rescue him then? What about when John was in chains on a prison colony in Patmos? Why didn't he rescue John then? That's why... I framed the truth the way I did. There will be storms, they will hurt, and you may die. Unless you die peacefully in your sleep at a ripe old age, a storm of one type or another will eventually claim your life. So, that means neither safety nor comfort are promised to you in the path of Christian discipleship. Come be baptized. And the rest of your life is going to hurt. What is promised to you is tribulation and a cross. Jesus took his disciples into this storm because there was something that he intended to teach them. There was a lesson they needed to learn. And Jesus will take you into storms because there is instruction therein that you need and sanctification that you require that can only be accomplished when the winds howl and the waves are beating across the bow of your boat. No suffering, no suffering that comes to the Christian in the path of discipleship is without purpose. I make that statement unequivocally with no qualifications. No suffering. You have never suffered as a Christian without purpose. Even that time in your life when you sinned so terribly and made a wreck out of your marriage, your job, your life, there was purpose in that. No suffering is without purpose in the path of Christian discipleship. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There is no such thing as meaningless suffering for the Christian. 
Every affliction you have ever, are, or will ever suffer in the path of Christian discipleship is preparing for you eternal glory of such weight that when you look back upon it from the vista of eternity, it will seem but momentary and light. So there will be storms. This is point number one. Spiritual, physical, emotional, marital, financial, and otherwise. They will hurt and you may die. But every second of that storm is designed by your Savior to bring you to eternal glory and joy. Truth number two. Storms reveal the presence or absence of true faith. After commanding the wind to cease, Jesus said to the disciples, Why are you still afraid? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Notice the correlation that Jesus makes between fear and faith. They are afraid, therefore they have no faith. In other words, for Jesus, fear and faith are inversely proportionate. In other words, the degree to which you trust in Christ is the degree to which you will not fear the storm. The degree to which you fear the storm is the degree to which you are failing to trust in Christ. Now, faith must have an object. It doesn't appear out of nowhere. There must be some solid ground in which faith can drop its anchor and and latch hold of. Okay, So what is the promise that Jesus insists that his disciples should have known? What is the promise that Jesus insists that his disciples should have believed that would have kept them from fear? Had he given them some assurance that they wouldn't die in the midst of the storm? I don't think so. I'm not aware of any promise Jesus made to his disciples ever that they would survive his ministry. In fact, Jesus very often said things that would lead them to believe the opposite. Listen to what he said in Matthew chapter 10 before he sends them out among the cities of Galilee. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, he told them, following me is dangerous business. Now, maybe, maybe they could have surmised from Jesus' words that they would die at the hands of men and not in a storm, but that misses the point entirely. Safety and comfort are not promised to any disciples of Jesus. So, returning to the question, What does Jesus insist that they should have believed that would have prevented them from being so afraid? I think it's a truth that is beautifully expressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. Namely, all things work for good, even death, 
for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And that good is your everlasting glory and joy. In other words, you have never received a scratch, you have never shed a tear, you have never suffered a heartache that has not been designed by your Father from all eternity for your good, your glory, and your everlasting joy. All things work for good. Every suffering is love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Just look at what Paul says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Here's what Paul does not go on to say. No, these things will not separate us from the love of Christ because Jesus is going to keep you from all these things. That's not what he says. Tribulation is not going to separate you from me because I'm going to give you prosperity. Distress, that's not going to separate you from me because you're going to have a stress-free existence. You won't be persecuted. You won't endure famine. You won't be naked. You won't be in danger. Nobody's going to kill you. Therefore, you will always feel my love. That's not what he says. He says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, not despite these things, not in spite of these things, in all these things. In tribulation, you conquer. In distress, you conquer. In famine, in nakedness, in danger, in sword, in slaughter, you conquer. The love of God causes you to conquer in and through such things. Therefore, eternal glory and joy comes through temporal pain and suffering. That's what the disciples should have known. In Christ, with Christ, nothing can befall me that is not good. That is not love. That will not result in everlasting glory and joy. What is a storm going to do when we got Jesus sleeping in the back of the boat? Even drowning in the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a terrible storm would result in the disciples' everlasting glory and joy. If Jesus is the Son of God, storms upon the sea cannot thwart his good and holy purpose. Indeed, they must serve his holy and good purpose. That is what believers know, and storms reveal the presence or the absence of that kind of faith. Your cancer... Your illness, your Parkinson's, your poverty, your marital strife, your financial disasters, your depression, your job turmoil, those cannot but serve your everlasting glory and joy. If you believe that, you will not fear. If you fear, you do not believe that. 
The source of your joy is revealed when safety, security, comfort, wealth, family, even life itself are taken away and all God offers to you is Jesus. That's when you find out whether he's enough. Believers look at such storms and they say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I drown in the middle of this storm in the Sea of Galilee, I gain. The third truth, look again at the flow of the passage. In verse 37, the great storm descends upon the lake. The waves are breaking into the boat, threatening to send all of its inhabitants into the depths of the lake into a watery grave. Verse 38, the disciples awaken Jesus, who's fast asleep in the stern. They accuse him either of insanity or indifference or both. Verse 39, Jesus rises and he commands the storm to cease. It instantly obeys. Immediately a great calm is ushered in where previously there was a great storm. In verse 40, Jesus rebukes the disciples for their fear and their lack of faith. Then comes verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. The storm's gone. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of Jesus. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They are more terrified in the midst of the great calm than they had ever been in the midst of the great storm. Truth number three, Jesus is more terrifying than any storm. R.C. Sproul, in his classic book, The Holiness of God, meditates upon this phenomenon. It's a lengthy quote, but it's good, and I'll read it to you in its entirety. He says, we see a strange pattern unfolding here, that the storm and raging sea frightened the disciples is not surprising. But once the danger passed and the sea was calm, it would seem that their fear would vanish as suddenly as the storm. It didn't happen that way. Now the sea was calm, and the fear of the disciples increased. How do we account for that? It was the father of modern psychiatry, Sigmund Freud, who once espoused the theory that people invent religion out of a fear of nature. In other words, we feel helpless before an earthquake, a flood, or a ravaging disease. So, said Freud, we invent a God who has power over the earthquake, flood, and disease. This God is personal. We can talk to him. We can try to bargain with him. We can plead with him to save us from the destructive forces of nature. We, we cannot plead with earthquakes, negotiate with floods, or bargain with cancer. So the theory goes, we invent God to help us deal with these scary things. What is significant about this scriptural story is that the disciples' fear increased after the threat of the storm was removed. The storm had made them afraid. Jesus' action to still the tempest made them more afraid. In the power of Christ, they met someone more frightening than they had ever met in nature. They were in the presence of the holy. We wonder what Freud would have said about that. Why would the disciples invent a God whose holiness was more terrifying than the forces of nature that provoked them to invent a God in the first place? We can understand if people invented an unholy God, a God who brought only comfort. But why a God more scary than the earthquake, flood, or disease? 
It is one thing to fall victim to the flood or to fall prey to cancer. It is another thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Sproul called this phenomenon the trauma of holiness. The disciples, when confronted by the divine holiness and sovereign power of Christ, were far more terrified of Jesus than they had ever been of the storm. Thinking they had understood Jesus before, now they find, up, find out that they've got to come up with entirely new categories for him. Who then is this? This is not some miracle-working prophet anymore. No prophet ever did this. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So I want you to take truth two and truth three Apply them to your storms, your storms that you're in or that you've been through and you're trying to make sense of, and I want you to see how they function both as the carrot and as the stick. The carrot is this. No storm can ever come upon you that is not designed for your everlasting good, glory, and joy. That's the carrot. The stick is... Don't believe that. Fear the storm. And Jesus will become more frightening to you than any circumstance that you've ever endured. The Bible speaks both by promise and by threat. And if you doubt me, go back and read further in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus himself, he tells his disciples, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. They're going to devour you. They're going to throw you in prison. They're going to beat you. They're going to kill you. You're going to be betrayed by those who are closest to you. But don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus said that. Why? Because he's scarier than Roman guards. He's scarier than cancer. He's scarier than poverty. Jesus will work all of his sovereign power for your good if you will trust him. But if you do not trust him and you fear the storm as if the storm were God and not Jesus, you will find what it means to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't tremble before storms. Tremble before Jesus. Jesus is God. And if the storm bows to his command, so should you. Finally, the ultimate truth of this message then is that Jesus is Lord of the storm. He commands it because he created it. I am the Lord your God, Isaiah 45, 7, and there is no other. I am the one who forms light and I create darkness. I am the, am the one who creates well-being and I create calamity. The storm rages by God's sovereign will. It departs at his command. It fulfills all his holy purpose. So do not fear the storm, whatever form that takes in your life. Fear Jesus and trust him. Yes, 
I am aware of the seeming paradox of what I'm telling you to do. Fear him and love him. Fear him and trust him that he loves you. But I'm okay with that tension because it's everywhere through the Bible. Fear Jesus and trust him and he will not let you fall and he will not fail to bring you to glory. And someday when you stand upon the summit of eternity and you look back upon all of the valleys of your life, you will fall down in thankfulness and praise to God for every single storm that he created for your good, your glory, and your everlasting joy. Every one of them. Why? Because every one of them have worked together to produce in you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So when you find yourself in the midst of the storm, winds howl, waves beating against the boat, threatening to break your resolve, you fear you can't take it anymore, I want you to affirm before God these three truths. So I'm speaking to two types of people this morning. I'm speaking to those of you who are in the midst of storms, and I have a broad definition of storms, physical, Emotional, spiritual, relational, marital, financial. Got more categories, throw them in. As long as they come with the temptation to fear rather than faith. If you're in the midst of one of those, I'm speaking to you. And if you have endured one of those storms and you're trying to make sense of it, why did God allow this to happen? I have three truths that before God I want you to affirm. I want you to say, number one, I will not fear the storm, I will fear God. I want you to say, number two, I will not accuse Jesus of indifference. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Does he not care? Of course he cares. He who freely gave up his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I will not accuse Jesus of indifference. I will trust in his sovereign love. Number three, I will not quit. But I will face whatever comes, even death, in faith, and I will receive it as gain. You say that over your present circumstances and you say that over your past circumstances and if you can remember, say it over your future circumstances. If you can't remember, I'll come back and I'll tell you to do these things then. And I need the same from you. There will come a day, I was keenly aware of this while I was writing this message, there will come a day. I can't particularly tell you of any great storm that I've endured few squalls, pretty smooth sailing, which tells me it's coming, or else I'm probably not going to make it to heaven, because holiness comes through storms. And I will need you in those days to come to me and to say, Pastor Tim, don't fear the storm. You fear Jesus. You fear unbelief. Pastor Tim, do not accuse Jesus of indifference. Trust in his sovereign love. Pastor Tim, don't quit. Face whatever comes, even death, 
and receive it as gain. I need that from you, you need that from me, we need that from one another. That's how all of us are gonna make it. Jesus is Lord of the storm. He created it, he controls it, and it cannot but fulfill his good and holy purpose, which is your everlasting good, your everlasting glory, and your everlasting joy in his everlasting presence. You are not a victim of the storm. You are being strengthened and sanctified by a loving and sovereign Savior. So do not fear, do not quit, do not be unbelieving. Hope, believe, persevere.